This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 10. Chapter 5. Oliver Twist. In considering Dickens, as we almost always must consider him, as a man of rich originality, we may possibly miss the forces from which he drew even his original energy. It is not well for man to be alone. We in the modern world are ready enough to admit that when it is applied to some problem of monasticism or of an ecstatic life. But we will not admit that our modern artistic claim to absolute originality is really a claim to absolute unsociability a claim to absolute loneliness. The anarchist is at least as solitary as the ascetic, and the men of very vivid vigor in literature, the men such as Dickens, have generally displayed a large sociability towards the society of letters, always expressed in the happy pursuit of pre-existent themes, sometimes expressed, as in the case of Moliere or Stern, in downright plagiarism. For even theft is a confession of our dependence on society. In Dickens, however, this element of the original foundations on which he worked is quite especially difficult to determine. This is partly due to the fact that for the present reading public he is practically the only one of his long line that is read at all. He sums up Smollett and Goldsmith, but he also destroys them. This one giant being closest to us cuts off from our view even the giants that begat him. But much more is this difficulty due to the fact that Dickens mixed up with the old material, materials so subtly modern, so made of the French Revolution, that the whole is transformed. If we want the best example of this, the best example is Oliver Twist. Relatively to the other works of Dickens, Oliver Twist is not of great value, but it is of great importance. Some parts of it are so crude and of so clumsy a melodrama that one is almost tempted to say that Dickens would have been greater without it. But even if he had been greater without it, he would still have been incomplete without it. With the exception of some gorgeous passages, both of humor and horror, the interest of the book lies not so much in its revelation of Dickens' literary genius as in its revelation of those moral, personal, and political instincts which were the make-up of his character and the permanent support of that literary genius. It is by far the most depressing of all his books. It is in some ways the most irritating. Yet its ugliness gives the last touch of honesty to all that spontaneous and splendid output. Without this one discordant note, all his merriment might have seemed like levity. Dickens had just appeared upon the stage, and set the whole world laughing with his first great story, Pickwick. Oliver Twist was his encore. It was the second opportunity given to him by those who had rolled about with laughter over Tupman and Jingle, Weller and Dowler. Under such circumstances a stagey reciter, will sometimes take care to give a pathetic piece after his humorous one, and with all his many moral merits, 
there was much that was stagey about Dickens. But this explanation alone is altogether inadequate and unworthy. There was in Dickens this other kind of energy, horrible, uncanny, barbaric, capable in another age of coarseness, greedy for the emblems of established ugliness, the coffin, the gibbet, the bones, the bloody knife. Dickens liked these things, and he was all the more of a man for liking them, especially he was all the more of a boy. We can all recall with pleasure the fact that Miss Petoker, afterwards Mrs. Lillivick, was in the habit of reciting a poem called The Blood Drinker's Burial. I cannot express my regret that the words of this poem are not given, for Dickens would have been quite as capable of writing The Blood Drinker's Burial as Mrs. Petoker was of reciting it. This strain existed in Dickens alongside of his happy laughter. Both were allied to the same robust romance. Here, as elsewhere, Dickens is close to all the permanent human things, he is close to religion, which he has never allowed the thousand devils on its churches to stop the dancing of its bells. He is allied to the people, to the real poor, who love nothing so much as to take a cheerful glass and to talk about funerals. The extremes of his gloom and gaiety are the mark of religion and democracy. They mark him off from the moderate happiness of philosophers and from that stoicism which is the virtue and the creed of aristocrats. There is nothing odd in the fact that the same man who conceived the humane hospitalities of Pickwick should also have imagined the inhuman laughter of Fagin's den. They are both genuine, and they are both exaggerated, and the whole human tradition has tied up together in a strange knot these strands of festivity and fear. It is over the cups of Christmas Eve that men have always competed in telling ghost stories. This first element was present in Dickens, and it is very powerfully present in Oliver Twist. It had not been present with sufficient consistency or continuity in Pickwick to make it remain on the reader's memory at all, for the tale of Gabriel Grubb is grotesque rather than horrible, and the two gloomy stories of the madman and the queer client are so utterly irrelevant to the tale that even if the reader remember them, he probably does not remember that they occur in Pickwick. Critics have complained of Shakespeare and others for putting comic episodes into a tragedy. It required a man with the courage and coarseness of Dickens actually to put tragic episodes into a farce. But they are not caught up into the story at all. In Oliver Twist, however, the thing broke out with an almost brutal inspiration, and those who had fallen in love with Dickens for his generous buffoonery may very likely have been startled at receiving such very different fare at the next helping. When you have bought a man's book because you like his writing about Mrs. Wardle's punch-bowl and Mr. Winkle's skates, it may very well be surprising to open it and read about the sickening thuds that beat out the life of Nancy, or that mysterious villain whose face was blasted with disease. As a nightmare, the work is really admirable characters which are not very clearly conceived as regards their own psychology are yet at certain moments managed so as to shake to its foundations our own psychology. Bill Sykes is not exactly a real man, but for all that he is a real murderer. Nancy is not really impressive as a living woman, but as the phrase goes she makes a lovely corpse. 
something quite childish and eternal in us, something which is shocked with the mere simplicity of death, quivers when we read of those repeated blows, or see Sykes cursing the tell-tale cur who will follow his bloody footprints. And this strange, sublime, vulgar melodrama, which is melodrama and yet is painfully real, reaches its hideous height in that fine scene of the death of Sykes, the besieged house, the boys screaming within, the crowd screaming without, the murderer turned almost a maniac and dragging his victim uselessly up and down the room. The escape over the roof, the rope swiftly running taut, and death sudden, startling, and symbolic. A man hanged. There is in this and similar scenes something of the quality of Hogarth, and many other English moralists, of the early eighteenth century. It is not easy to define this Hogarthian quality in words, beyond saying that it is a sort of alphabetical realism, like the cruel candor of children. But it has about it these two special principles, which separate it from all that we call realism in our time. First, that with us a moral story means a story about moral people. With them a moral story meant more often a story about immoral people. Second, that with us realism is always associated with some subtle view of morals, with them realism was always associated with some simple view of morals. The end of Bill Sykes, exactly in the way that the law would have killed him, this is a Hogarthian incident. It carries on that tradition of startling and shocking platitude. All this element in the book was a sincere thing in the author, but none the less it came from old soils, from the graveyard and the gallows, and the lane where the ghost walked. Dickens was always attracted to such things, as Forrester says, with inimitable simplicity, but for his strong sense might have fallen into the follies of spiritualism. As a matter of fact, like most of the men of strong sense in his tradition, Dickens was left with a half-belief in spirits which became in practice a belief in bad spirits. The great disadvantage of those who have too much strong sense to believe in supernaturalism is that they keep last the low and little forms of the supernatural, such as omens, curses, spectres, and retributions, but find a high and happy supernaturalism quite incredible. Thus the Puritans denied the sacraments, but went on burning witches. This shadow does rest to some extent upon the rational English writers like Dickens. Supernaturalism was dying, but its ugliest roots died last. Dickens would have found it easier to believe in a ghost than in a vision of the Virgin with angels. There, for good or evil, however, was the root of the old diablerie in Dickens, and there it is in Oliver Twist. But this was only the first of the new Dickens elements, which must have surprised those Dickensians who eagerly bought his second book. The second of the new Dickens elements is equally indisputable and separate. It swelled afterward to enormous proportions in Dickens' work, but it really has its rise here. Again, as in the case of the element of diablerie, it would be possible to make technical exceptions in favor of Pickwick, just as there were quite inappropriate scraps of the gruesome element in Pickwick, so there are quite inappropriate allusions to this other topic in Pickwick. But nobody by merely reading Pickwick would even remember this topic. No one by merely reading Pickwick would know what this topic is. The third great subject of Dickens, this second great subject of the Dickens of Oliver Twist.
This subject is social oppression. It is surely fair to say that no one could have gathered from Pickwick how this question boiled in the blood of the author of Pickwick. There are indeed passages, particularly in connection with Mr. Pickwick in The Debtor's Prison, which proves to us, looking back on a whole public career, that Dickens had been from the beginning bitter and inquisitive about the problem of our civilization. No one could have imagined at the time that this bitterness ran in an unbroken river under all the surges of that superb gaiety and exuberance. With Oliver Twist, this sterner side of Dickens was suddenly revealed. For the very first pages of Oliver Twist are stern even when they are funny. They amuse, but they cannot be enjoyed, as can the passages about the follies of Mr. Snodgrass or the humiliations of Mr. Winkle. The difference between the old easy humour and this new harsh humour is a difference not of degree but of kind. Dickens makes game of Mr. Bumble because he wants to kill Mr. Bumble. He made game of Mr. Winkle because he wanted him to live forever. Dickens has taken the sword in hand. Against what is he declaring war? It is just here that the greatness of Dickens comes in. It is just here that the difference lies between the pedant and the poet. Dickens enters the social and political war, and the first stroke he deals is not only significant but even startling. Fully to see this we must appreciate the national situation. It was an age of reform, and even of radical reform. The world was full of radicals and reformers, but only too many of them took the line of attacking everything and anything that was opposed to some particular theory among the many political theories that possessed the end of the eighteenth century. Some had so much perfected the perfect theory of republicanism that they almost lay awake at night because Queen Victoria had a crown on her head. Others were so certain that mankind had hitherto been merely strangled in the bonds of the state that they saw truth only in the destruction of tariffs or in bylaws. The greater part of that generation held that clearness, economy, and a hard common sense would soon destroy the errors that had been erected by the superstition and sentimentalities of the past. In pursuance of this idea, many of the new men of the new century, quite confident that they were invigorating the new age, sought to destroy the old sentimental clericalism the old sentimental feudalism, the old-world belief in priests, the old-world belief in patrons, and, among other things, the old-world belief in beggars. They sought, among other things, to clear away the old visionary kindliness on the subject of vagrants. Hence those reformers enacted not only a new reform bill, but also a new poor law. In creating many other modern things, they created the modern workhouse, and when Dickens came out to fight, it was the first thing that he broke with his battle-axe. This is where Dickens' social revolt is of more value than mere politics, and avoids the vulgarity of the novel with a purpose. His revolt is not a revolt of the commercialist against the feudalist, of the nonconformist against the churchman, of the free trader against the protectionist, of the liberal against the Tory, if he were among us now, his revolt would not be the revolt of the socialist against the individualist, or of the anarchist against the socialist. His revolt was simply, and solely, the eternal revolt. It was the revolt of the weak against the strong. 
he did not dislike this or that argument for oppression he disliked oppression he disliked a certain look on the face of a man when he looks down on another man and that look on the face is indeed the only thing in the world that we have really to fight between here and the fires of hell that which pedants of that time and this time would have called the sentimentalism of dickens was really simply the detached sanity of dickens he cared nothing for the fugitive explanations of the constitutional conservatives he cared nothing for the fugitive explanations of the manchester school he would have cared quite as little for the fugitive explanations of the fabian society or of the modern scientific socialist he saw that under many forms there was one fact the tyranny of man over man and he struck at it when he saw it whether it was old or new when he found that footmen and rustics were too much afraid of sir leicester dedlock he attacked sir leicester dedlock he did not care whether sir leicester dedlock said he was attacking england or whether mr rouncewell the ironmaster said he was attacking an effete oligarchy in that case he pleased mr rouncewell the ironmaster and displeased sir leicester dedlock the aristocrat but when he found that mr rouncewell's workmen were much too frightened of mr rouncewell then he displeased mr rouncewell in turn he displeased mr rouncewell very much by calling him mr bounderby when he imagined himself to be fighting old laws he gave a sort of vague and general approval to new laws but when he came to the new laws they had a bad time when dickens found that after a hundred economic arguments and granting a hundred economic considerations the fact remained that paupers in modern workhouses were much too afraid of the beetle just as vassals in an ancient castle were much too afraid of the deadlocks then he struck suddenly and at once this is what makes the opening chapters of oliver twist so curious and important the very fact of dickens distance from and independence of the elaborate financial arguments of his time makes more definite and dazzling his sudden assertion that he sees the old human tyranny in front of him as plain as the sun at noonday dickens attacks the modern workhouse with a sort of inspired simplicity as of a boy in a fairy tale who had wandered about sword in hand looking for ogres and who had found an indisputable ogre all the other people of his time are attacking things because they are bad economics or because they are bad politics or because they are bad science he alone is attacking things because they are bad all the others are radicals with a large r he alone is radical with a small one he encounters evil with that beautiful surprise which as it is the beginning of all real pleasure is also the beginning of all righteous indignation he enters the workhouse just as Oliver Twist enters it, as a little child. This is the real power and pathos of that celebrated passage in the book which has passed into a proverb, but which has not lost its terrible humor, even in being hackneyed. I mean, of course, the everlasting quotation about Oliver Twist asking for more. The real poignancy that there is in this idea is a very good study in that strong school of social criticism which dickens represented a modern realist describing the dreary workhouse would have made all the children utterly crushed not daring to speak at all not expecting anything not hoping anything past all possibility of affording even ironical contrast or a protest of despair 
a modern in short would have made all the boys in the workhouse pathetic by making them all pessimists but oliver twist is not pathetic because he is a pessimist oliver twist is pathetic because he is an optimist the whole tragedy of that incident is in the fact that he does expect the universe to be kind to him that he does believe that he is living in a just world he comes before the guardians as the ragged peasants of the french revolution came before the kings and parliaments of europe that is to say he comes indeed with gloomy experiences but he comes with a happy philosophy he knows that there are wrongs of a man to be reviled but he believes also that there are rights of a man to be demanded it has often been remarked as a singular fact that the french poor who stand in historic tradition as typical of all the desperate men who have dragged down tyranny were as a matter of fact by no means worse off than the poor of many other european countries before the revolution the truth is that the french were tragic because they were better off the others had known the sorrowful experiences but they alone had known the splendid expectation and the original claims it was just here that dickens was so true a child of them and of that happy theory so bitterly applied they were the one oppressed people that simply asked for justice they were the one parish boy who innocently asked for more end of section 10 end of chapter 5 oliver twist